Please be seated. Our scripture this morning is an excerpt from the Apostle Paul's uh, second letter to his student, his colleague, his protege, Timothy. Quite possibly written from prison, Paul knows that he cannot continue his missionary work forever and that it may already be nearing its end. And so he exhorts Timothy to carry on his legacy. He asks him to remember everything that Paul has taught him and to teach it to others. But if you've ever played a game of telephone, you know how easily messages can be distorted when passed from one person, from one generation to another. Memory is an unreliable witness. There are three sides to every story and four to every gospel. Paul and Timothy and those who came after them, they all added their own spin to the Christian faith. And in a world where we can't be certain what's real, how can we hold on to what is true? A reading from 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 to 15. Remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, a descendant of David, that is my gospel, for which I suffer hardship, even to the point of being chained like a criminal. But the word of God is not chained. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, so that they may also obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is sure. If we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he will remain faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Remind them of this and warn them before God that they are to avoid wrangling over words, which does no good but only ruins those who are listening. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved by him, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly explaining the world of truth. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Amen. Please pray with me. Everlasting God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations upon all of our hearts serve to glorify you, and may they be in keeping with the teachings of our Savior Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Got any big plans this weekend? I asked Sherry, one of my colleagues, as I was leaving the office on a Friday afternoon. I was sipping a cup of Dunkin' Donuts coffee, as usual, raising it to my lips as she replied with a smile. Yeah, actually, she said, Paul and I are going to see Steely Dan tonight at the Ravinia Pavilion. I paused, the cup still hovering before my face. I'm sorry, did you say Steely Dan? I asked her. Yeah, she replied, Steely Dan, they're playing at Ravinia. 
My mind flashed back to a conversation that I had with my older brother many years ago when I was barely a teenager. We used to talk a lot about music in those days as we were both developing our collections and our tastes, exploring new albums and old classics that we'd never heard before. Funny thing about Steely Dan, he once told me, trying to impress me with a bit of rock and roll trivia, they're a studio band. They never tour or play live shows. Now, it has to be said that my brother is not the most reliable narrator. He once told me that he'd met a time-traveling guitar player back in the late 1990s, a man in a black suit and a bowler hat who believed that it was 1986. He also tried to convince me once that the actor Telly Savalas had somehow gone back in time to rewrite portions of the world's most influential texts, notably the Bhagavad Gita and the Bible, in such a way as to alter the course of history and secure himself the leading role on the television series Kojak. So you could take him with a grain of salt. Uh, nevertheless, I found myself repeating the same line about Steely Dan to some guy at a barbecue last summer. Funny thing about Steely Dan, I told him, trying to sound like I knew what I was talking about, they're a studio band. They never tour or play live shows. And now here I am standing in Sherry's office and she's telling me she's gonna go see them play tonight at Ravinia. <laughs> That's impossible, I, I sputtered. That's the funny thing about Steely Dan. They're a studio band. They never tour or play live shows. What are you talking about, she replied. They've been touring for 30 years. I felt dizzy. The room around me got a little blurry. Had I been wrong all this time? Had I lied to the guy at the barbecue? Had someone gone back and altered the past? I was reeling, reeling in the years. In his, uh, in his novel, 1984, George Orwell's protagonist, a man named Winston, has a curious job. See, Winston is employed by the so-called Ministry of Truth, which distributes state-funded propaganda uh, in Orwell's fictional dystopia. Now, Winston's job, specifically, requires him to alter any newspapers, publications, history books, any documents that contradict the ruling party's current stance. If rations are reduced by 25%, for instance, well, it's Winston's job to eradicate any evidence that suggests the rations used to be higher. On the contrary, he must convince people that the rations used to be lower, didn't you hear? The party's increasing rations by 25%. Or consider, perhaps, their country, Europa's relationship with its neighboring nation, Oceania. Europa is at war with Oceania. In reality, they used to be allies, but no one can ever know that, no. Europa has always been at war with Oceania because the party is never wrong. And it's Winston's job to ensure that any publications stating otherwise are promptly altered or incinerated in a systematic effort to gaslight the entire populace. In Orwell's fiction, history is literally being changed and rewritten. The author, Philip K. Dick, an eccentric man in his own right, 
actually believed that was true. Not in the dystopian fascist style of 1984, but by even more strange and unconventional methods. One day in 1954, Philip K. Dick came home from a trip and uh, found that the light switch next to his door that had always been there was missing. And in its place, there was a lamp hanging from the ceiling with a chain dangling from it. And after that, Philip K. Dick came to believe that some mysterious entity was going around changing things for some unknown purpose. The incident inspired him to write a short story called The Adjustment Team, in which an agency of mysterious men make small adjustments to the world in order to influence future outcomes, not unlike my brother's own theories about Telly Savalas. But then Philip K. Dick also claimed to have memories of Germany winning World War II and of living in first century Rome. So again, take him with a grain of salt. But while all of this may seem pretty out there, pretty absurd, patently ridiculous, it's actually not all that uncommon for large groups of people to remember important events differently from the way that they've been documented. Now there's a curious phenomenon, well-documented phenomenon, called the Mandela Effect, which occurs when collective memories don't line up with historical facts. So the prime example of this is South African President Nelson Mandela. Apparently hundreds, if not thousands of people, seem to believe that Nelson Mandela died in prison sometime in the 1980s. They share vivid memories of television news coverage, riots breaking out in some cities, and more specifically, a moving speech by Bill Clinton at his funeral. Now, the only problem, of course, is that Nelson Mandela didn't pass away until 2013, and Bill Clinton was the only living president who did not attend the service. So where are these memories coming from? Well, I mean, you can chalk it up to faulty memories, and that's probably all it is. Memory is a fragile thing. To quote a character from the film Memento, who suffers from short-term memory loss, he says, memory can change the shape of a room, it can change the color of a car, and memories can be distorted. They're just an interpretation, they're not a record, and they're irrelevant if you have the facts. But the facts don't always seem to align with perception. There are lots, dozens, of other more trivial manifestations of this Mandela effect phenomenon in our culture. A lot of people, maybe you, believe that the Statue of Liberty is on Ellis Island, but it's not. You might remember the guy from the Monopoly board game wearing a monocle, but he never did. And Jif peanut butter was never called Jiffy. Contrary to popular belief, it's always just been Jif. They'll probably say the same thing about Dunkin' Donuts now that they've officially changed the name to Dunkin', which, by the way, I think is a terrible idea. <laughs> you know I love Dunkin' Donuts, but I don't know what they were thinking when they cooked up that marketing strategy. I mean, you dunk the donuts. 
We're supposed to start dunking everything in our coffee now? Just dunking? That's no way to compete with Starbucks. But in 10 years, they'll probably say that it's always been called Dunkin'. Didn't you know Europa has always been at war with Oceana? Memory is a fragile thing. And so is our faith sometimes as it's colored by preachers and prophets who misremember the teachings of Jesus. The Bible itself is not always a reliable narrator, being the product of so many generations of storytellers and authors and editors. But even within its own context, I would argue that there are two distinct strands of Christianity offered in its pages. One of these is found in the canonical Gospels, and it seems pretty straightforward. The other, a product of Paul's letters to the churches that he established, is full of complex theological ideas. And while it isn't totally wrong, per se, I think it's been warped by the Mandela effect. The four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they offer detailed accounts of Jesus' life, at least the last three years of it. Yes, they were written between 50 and 70 years after his death. Yes, they offer different uh, perspectives and pursue different theological agendas. They are not entirely reliable narrators, but taken as a whole, they do offer a pretty straightforward and consistent record of Jesus' teachings. And what did he say? Forgive often. Be generous. Don't judge others without judging yourself first. Take care of the poor and the oppressed and the disenfranchised. Love your neighbors. Love your enemies. Love everyone. You don't need a theological degree to comprehend what Jesus is trying to say. Now, other non-canonical gospels can also tell us a few things about Jesus. In one little-known text, for instance, we're told that Jesus wore his facial hair, his, his beard, and his mustache like other Jewish men at the time, but that he once shaved all of this off in order to make a point about beginning anew in the kingdom of God. And when he tries to relate this parable to the shaving of his mustache, Peter tells him, but teacher, you never had a mustache. And the people were amazed, saying, is this not the son of the carpenter Joseph? Surely he has gone out of his mind. All right, I made all that up. That's, there's no gospel about Jesus shaving his mustache. It's, it's actually the plot of an independent French film called Les Moustaches, about a guy with a robust chin rug, I'm sorry, lip rug, there we go. Robust mustache who shaves it off one day and uh, then he has an existential crisis when his wife insists that he never had one to begin with. But I had you go in there for a minute, didn't I? That's how easy it is to alter the gospel truth. Now, I'm not saying that the Apostle Paul manipulated Jesus' teachings in such a dishonest way or that he was anything but well-meaning. But if memories are an interpretation and not a record, then I think something got lost in translation here. You see, the Gospels focused on how Jesus lived and what he taught. 
But Paul's letters seem primarily concerned with how he died. He is determined to know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Paul's Christianity is rooted in the crucifixion. And this is where we find the theology of the atonement, that Christ was offered as a blood sacrifice to atone for the sins of humanity and appease God's wrath. Here we find a lot of complex theological ideas about grace and justification, about the Trinity. Here, faith in Jesus is the only path to salvation. Here, homosexual love is condemned. And here we find some really questionable theological ideas about women being silent in church and submitting to the will of their husbands. Put simply, Paul's letters are full of things that Jesus never actually said. A lot of Christian theology is based on things that Jesus never actually said. Paul warned about wrangling over words and how that does no good for anyone, but a lot of these very dense theological ideas are just that, wrangling over words. Whole churches have broken apart over whether you know, Christ's body is present in the host or with the host or at the table, or all these kinds of very specific ideas, wrangling over words, tearing people apart over things that Jesus never actually said. But a lot of people mistakenly believe that Jesus did say these things, along with phrases like, God helps those who help themselves. Jesus never said that either nor did anyone else in the Bible. The past is malleable. And Paul says something really telling in this letter to Timothy, a phrase so subtle that you could, be, could not be blamed uh, for missing it. This is my gospel, Paul writes. His gospel. Paul's gospel. And it might look a little bit different from what Jesus actually said, but it's what people remember, echoes of the Mandela effect. Now, I'm not here to criticize Paul. Without him, the faith as we know it might not exist. Without Paul's efforts, the gospel might have withered on the vine, just another weird cult in first century Rome. And I do believe that Paul was truly called by God to spread the good news of Christ. But Paul was also just a man, and I think he got a few things wrong. Jesus preached a gospel of love, plain and simple. But the ones who followed him, Paul and a million other priests and pastors and preachers and prophets and theologians, they complicated things with a whole lot of theological dogma that's been used, misused, frankly, to exclude and condemn people, Muslims and Jews, LGBTQ folks, immigrants. I don't think that was Paul's intent. He actually preached a pretty inclusive gospel in many ways, but it's what a lot of folks take away from it. It's what they remember, and memories can be distorted. So which story is it? Which God, which Christ, 
which reality is true. Among those who study the Mandela effect, there are some who believe that it offers evidence for parallel worlds. That some people experienced a mysterious shift from one reality to another in which their memories no longer align with the historical record. That's pretty out there. That's, uh, that's a kind of science fiction story. But I did find one account that gives me pause and makes me wonder. One source claims that having heard about this phenomenon, he went into his closet and dug up an old paper that he'd written for school about the significance of Nelson Mandela's passing. It was dated March 11th, 1983. Kind of makes you wonder. I don't know if there really is a multiverse out there, an endless array of parallel worlds, but I know that we can choose what kind of world we want to believe in. We can believe in a reality where great leaders die in prison, a world that never changes or gets any better. Or we can believe in a world where some people go on to become the rulers of nations and establish something akin to the kingdom of God as Mandela tried to do when he helped to negotiate the end of South African apartheid. Maybe the past is malleable. I don't know. But if it is, and so is the future. So which reality are we going to live in? There's a famous saying ascribed uh, to a wise man who's telling a story, and he says, I don't know if it really happened this way, but I know this story is true. So what story, friends, are we going to tell? Amen.